Welcome to the 2019 Wealth Standard Podcast, Season 1, Capitalism. And now your host, Patrick Donahoe. Hi, everyone. This uh, is Patrick Donahoe, and thanks for watching or listening to this episode of the Wealth Standard Podcast. I'm really excited to talk with my guest today, whose name is Greg Lukianoff. And before I let him introduce himself, I'm going to give a, a short bio. So Greg Lukianoff is an attorney, New York Times bestselling author, and the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. He's uh, the author of a number of books, uh, including Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship and the End of American Debate, Freedom from Speech, and FIRE's Guide to Free Speech on Campus. And FIRE is the, uh, the acronym for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And then most recently, which is uh, the book we'll probably get most into today, is The Coddling of the American Mind. I love that word, coddling. How good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. And uh, the co-author of that book was Jonathan Hype. So, Greg, I'm super excited to have you on. Thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. So, I just want to dive right into it. So, would you maybe give us just a brief, tell us about your background and the path that took you to the organization you now lead, FIRE, and the books you've authored, including the most recent one? Sure, absolutely. That's a little bit of a long story, but I'll try to do it as quickly as possible. So, let's go back to how I was born. <laughs> um, you know, there's, you know, Joe Rogan has done four hour podcasts before. So, oh, that's great. Well, my father is a Russian refugee um, who grew up in Yugoslavia. My mother is an ethnically Irish, grew up in Britain, and thinks herself as British. And growing up, my parents had very different ideas of the value, comparative value of truthfulness versus politeness, with my mom having an exaggerated sense of politeness coming from being sort of like an Irish uh, girl in, in Britain. Sometimes you get like, you want to be more British than the British. And my dad, you know, has a sort of Russian sense that if it's not, you know, that you want to be fairly cutting (laughs) and that essentially like, you know, as my father would say, politeness is a form of deception, which it is, to be fair. And so, uh, you know, I joke that my earliest memory was Christmas when I was four years old. And it's true. And uh, I got a toy that I didn't like. And my mom, uh, and it was the first time I remember getting a toy I didn't like. My mom wanted me to be polite. My dad wanted me to be honest. My mom wanted me to be polite. My dad wanted me to be honest. <laughs> and so I do what any good four-year-old would do is I break out in tears. And my oldest sister, Katie, um, was like, oh, poor baby. Got a toy didn't like. Starts crying. And I remember being like, I don't have the words for this, but the problem really here is a societal paradox. I didn't know how to explain it, but it was just kind of like, no, I I was put in a situation where I couldn't say what I wanted to say because it was considered wrong, but I had to be honest. I couldn't do both. So partially, my whole appreciation for freedom of speech comes in part from being an immigrant kid and living in a neighborhood with a lot of other first-generation kids or other kids from different parts of the country. And that meant that really, more or less, you had to kind of develop your own rules. Um, And the first one is you had to hear people out. And you couldn't impose anybody else's idea of politeness because nobody's parents agreed on what politeness meant. It's really essential to kind of like how I got really excited about this. Hmm. Went to undergrad at American University, um, where I was a student journalist. That gets you really radicalized with regards to freedom of speech. (laughs) Coming into your office saying, could you fire so-and-so? It's like, no, I can't fire so-and-so. And what's your reason? And watching the wheels turn in people's heads to be kind of like, I don't know why I should censor you or how I could get away with it, but um, give me some time. And realizing just how felicitous we were at this whole process. So I went to law school, specialized in First Amendment. Um, I went to Stanford for law school. I took every class that they had on First Amendment. And then when I ran out of that, 
I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty because that's how you know something's your passion is if you tell people about it, they're like, that sounds ridiculous. I interned at the ACLU of Northern California. And Hmm. despite all of this experience, when I started at FIRE, when it was only about a year and a half old, way back in 2001, I was shocked at how easy it was to get in trouble on the modern college campus. But what was different back then, and this is the bulk of my career, is that the students were actually the best constituency on campus for freedom of speech. They got it. You know, they loved their Dave Chappelle. They loved, they got offensive comedians. They got like even like the hard, you know, bonus credit questions, you know, when it comes to First Amendment stuff in a way that some professors did, but not all, in a way that a lot of administrators just did. And so I, I sometimes explain my career as being a chunk of pretty much 2001 to 2013 being when I was almost exclusively dealing with administrators, silencing people. It looks like you had a question. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's just interesting to see how influence has kind of shaped your view of the world and personality and, and what you think and what you come to, to believe. So maybe I would assume, you know, in, in law school specifically, how did you get to the point where you understood individual rights and maybe the connection it had to education to the level where, you know, you pursued making this your, your career, especially with FIRE? You know, I'm not sure if I understood it as being anything more than just something essential for a genuinely free society. And that so many things that, you know, it's kind of funny because sometimes, you know, people who are not first generation or not immigrants including my wife, could kind of pick on us for the fact that we, my mother, we call each other on the 4th of July. You know, we wish each other a happy 4th of July. And they, you know, my, my wife kind of thought that was kind of cute and sort of silly. And I'm like, okay, this is one thing that like immigrant kids get that other people don't. There's a lot to like about this country. And there are a lot of things that we should never take for granted. And right at the top of the list is free speech. It's unusual in human history. It's unusual in the world in general. And it is probably one of the great innovations in all of human history, but it's also extraordinarily fragile. So I went in there like a real believer mm-hmm. in it anyway. But the education part, honestly, like I didn't give a, the education element that much thought until I was um, recruited by FIRE back in 2001. But, uh, you know, when I thought about it, I was like, well, right. Yeah, I have run into some of this stuff in college. It's, it was never that terrible, but certainly oh, interesting. All right. seeing columnists get in trouble when I was an undergrad was definitely pretty common. And definitely Stanford was an environment where even at that time, it was really easy to say the wrong thing because people were kind of almost like pulling for you to say the wrong thing. And living in San Francisco, that was kind of like my first experience with like really runaway groupthink, you know, where I lived in D.C. for six years and I I missed the way we argued in D.C. when I was living out there. But it was only when I started at fire when I started to realize how bad it was. It, It didn't take me very long before I started having cases where there are consistently cases where you're saying to yourself, you gotta be kidding me. Um, you know, the, the case that we give in the book and I've given over and over again, but it's probably one of fire's most famous cases is we had a student get in trouble for reading a book in public. The book was called Notre Dame versus the Klan. He was trying to educate himself on Klan history. And what people sometimes these days don't know was that they are also anti-Catholic back then. And they marched on Notre Dame back in, I think, 26 or maybe 24. And there was a great street battle. Uh, students went out and fought them, and they won. So it's just like joyously anti-Klan book. So it, not that that makes it any more or less protected. It just mm-hmm. makes it more ironic that he got in trouble. And so he was found guilty of a racial harassment at the school, uh, public school in Indiana, because it made two employees allegedly uncomfortable. The title of the book and the picture of the rally on the cover. And that was kind of, you know, for a long time, that was 
nobody was really paying attention to these kind of cases. And so I spent a lot of my career, you know, banging on this drum saying, it's actually much worse. It's actually much worse than you think. And that was my first book on learning liberty, what was more or less saying, guys, this is actually worse than you think. That being said, in 2012, it actually seemed like things were on a positive trajectory, that, mm. that essentially things were getting were getting better. The cases weren't quite as ridiculous, which is just one way to, to tell how uh, good or bad your speech environment is. But somehow, 2013, right around 2013, 2014, right after my book came out, we started seeing seemingly overnight this sudden push among the students to demand that speakers be disinvited, um, not just I don't want to hear this person and I'm going to protest outside their speech, but I don't want them setting foot on my campus. That's when you start hearing about things like trigger warning requests and microaggression policies. Um, that's when uh, you start seeing, you know, the, the students really, you know, taking to the streets themselves, you know, to be in some cases, unfortunately, mob censors shouting people down, for example. And this was not what I was used to. And it really seemingly happened very quickly. So I wrote a short book, and I think it's, you know, one of the better things I've written uh, in 2014 when this was all brand new to me called Freedom From Speech. It's only about 9,000 words, but it's me more or less just explaining how I actually think that freedom of speech is endangered by progress itself. <laughs> and what I mean by that, as your society, as you as a society, as you as an individual, get to be more comfortable, get to have more technology, get to have more options in who you talk to both online and off and, and live in communities that better reflect your values. You can physically move to areas that are more like-minded people, that this is going to necessarily have a negative effect on freedom of speech. Because people who are in these echo chambers, people who are in these, these environments that sound so, so wonderfully pleasant to be like, I'm going to live in communities that reflect my values. I'm going to join internet communities that also reinforce my values. But there's a real problem with that. The social science is very clear that when you just talk to people with whom you agree politically, for example, you tend to become much more radicalized in the position of the group, um, if only out of weight of arguments that you know for your side and not for the other. Um, so I made the argument in Freedom From Speech that this is going to actually get worse and it's actually going to be kind of a condition of wealth, of progress. Oh, progress, yeah. yeah. So that, that was um, Freedom uh, From Speech. But then in 2015, um, I had the pleasure of, of writing with my then very new friend, Jonathan Haidt, famous, brilliant social psychologist who wrote a wonderful book. Well, actually, two wonderful books, The Happiness Hypothesis, which is about taking the scientific approach to what actually makes people happy and trying to figure out which does. So like, you know, short observations are like, don't live by the airport. <laughs> Try to limit your commute. Is very, Those are very robust findings. But then two things that, that came out very strongly were meditation and CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's why I wanted to talk to John back in 2015 about this idea I've been thinking. And it comes from, you know, I'm very open about this in the book. It comes from getting very depressed back in 2007. And, I, and I'd always had issues with depression in my life. But this was, you know, going to the hospital kind of bad, which was the first time I ever really had to go to the hospital. And what got me out of that, which actually forever changed my relationship to my own depression, and I, I always want to be clear, I also took medications and like, you know, I was recently criticized for by someone saying it's like, but you don't talk about medication. I'm like, absolutely. You know, talk to your psychiatrist, get help, talk to your doctor right away. But CBT for the long term was really the thing that helped me. And what CBT is, is more or less learning some of the crazy exaggerations everybody's brain makes, you know, kind of like when you go on a date and it doesn't go well and you're like, I'm going to die alone. 
that's a cognitive distortion because you're not, you know, from this, you don't know you're going to die alone. This is just a crazy kind of exaggeration that most people make. And these include things like binary thinking. Everything's going to be all good or all bad. Fortune telling, you know, this idea that, you know, I'm going to die alone. Catastrophizing, you know, if I, if I get a, um, a C on this paper, I'll never get into Princeton or whatever. And these are all ideas that you have to kind of learn to talk back to. And amazingly, and it takes practice, it takes a lot of practice. But if you get yourself in the habit of talking back to the sort of sad and crazy and depressed voices in your head, they start having a lot less power over you. The reason why I still get depressed sometimes, but um, I now can fight back in a way that I never could before. It's interesting because you know, you're, you're talking about kind of the, the spectrum of emotions or spectrum of feelings. And it's interesting, and I think this is what you're alluding to, but experiencing that is, I would say, instrumental to growth and, and learning, yeah. right? And you talk a lot about in the book, you know, safetyism and protectionism, right? And, and those type of experiences when, you know, there's so much pressure there that you're, you really need to figure things out, it teaches you so much. But at the same time, you know, as you've been, as you've been speaking, I think it's a natural, one of those natural tendencies that we have to want to be safe. I mean, it's a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's like you you want safety and people find safety in in a lot of different things. But when there's a group of people that, you know, believe the way that they believe, you know, and and think the way that they think and say, you know, they may come with thoughts and will align with people with the same thoughts. But then when it's there, right, it becomes so strong because the numbers, the collective, you know, is magnified where something that's different, it's difficult to... uh, to cope with that at the same time, are you making the point that those difficulties, right, the experience of other point of views or things that are disruptive are in fact uh, healthy and beneficial? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, you know, my, my thinking on education overall is a lot of education, frankly, is learning to overcome some of our, you know, worser nature, to Shakespeare it up. And some of it is, you know, our desire for comfort, our desire for affirmation can actually come with some really serious negative uh, side effects. And, you know, even my horrible, horrifying depression, after the fact, I realized that um, I was really anxious about taking the job as president. I was formerly the legal director of fire, and I loved that job. It was like a, a lawyer's dream come true to be that. And I was very anxious about becoming president, partially because I didn't know if I could take it. I mean, like you're in the culture war all the time. It's really nasty. And I was afraid I might like have a breakdown. And then in 2007, I had one. And then I got over it. And I felt like that fear of like what I was capable of had put sort of a cap on the possibilities for my entire life. And that was lifted, which and it was I paid a horrible price for. It was really, really difficult. But at the end, it's hard for me not to see that as something that I had to eventually work through or spend the rest of my life always a little bit afraid of of, um, my own fragility. Do you associate that right there that as the driving force? behind why there are issues on college campuses, why you have, you know, helicopter parents is just, yep. you know, maybe irrational sense of fear. Absolutely. An exaggerated sense of fear, which is sometimes semi-rational at least. But yeah, yeah actually thinking, uh, explain a little bit more about how the thought process happened. So I'm working on college campuses, trying to overcome my own depression and anxiety by teaching myself, don't overgeneralize, don't catastrophize, don't personalized. Don't do all of these things that we talk about in the book. And we have like a list of cognitive distortions in the book that are super helpful. And and I was looking at what was going on on campus being like, it seems like administrators are constantly actually telling students, by the way, you should catastrophize, you should personalize, you should do all these things. I'm like, wow, this is going to make people depressed and anxious. But at the time I was saying to myself also, 
thank goodness students aren't buying it. You know, they're, they're not listening to it. It's not, so far, it doesn't seem to be having much effect on them. And then in 2013, 2014, it just got a lot worse. And one of the things that made, it's not unheard of for students to come out against freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. um, this happened in the late 80s, early 90s as well. Um, that was kind of like the first great age of political correctness. Um, that's you know, where most of us remember that term from. But at the time, they're mostly talking about things like bigotry and racism and all this kind of stuff. Whereas that was certainly still part of the argument in 2013, 2014. But the emphasis was very much on um, sort of psychology, that essentially this person, if they come onto campus, it's not just that I'll hate the fact that they're there, but me or, or more importantly, my fellow students will find it psychologically harmful in a, in a real medical sense for that person to be on campus. And I knew enough about, you know, I'm kind of a psychology hobbyist to be like, that doesn't sound right. I should definitely go get a sanity check from my friend John Hyde about this. <laughs> um, and I told him, you know, about this idea about how it seems like we're teaching cognitive distortions. And to my delight, um, he said, let's write an article about it. And I was like, sure, of course, we'll write it like, in a heartbeat. I'd love to write an article with you. So this is back in 2014, right around the time that I was publishing Freedom From Speech. And we published an article in The Atlantic called Coddling of the American Mind. By the way, a title I actually didn't really love because I thought it sounded kind of insulting to students that I was trying to reach. But, you know, to give you a sense of how it was probably the right title to go with, my preferred title was Arguing Towards Misery, which um, everybody who hears it's like, that is really, really boring. <laughs> yeah. Coddling is a good, catchy word. It's, it, and it's a, good, a nice old-fashioned word that everybody knows. Yeah. So we write this article in, in 2015, also called Coddling the American Mind, and we talk about microaggressions. We talk about trigger warnings and about how this seems to actually be teaching students not to get over their fears, not to confront ideas that make them uncomfortable and giving them a whole sort of battery of things, which we said, you know, that's a formula for making people more depressed and more anxious than they already are. So we published the article expecting to be beheaded because we were saying stuff that if you said on a campus would probably at least get you called to an office somewhere. But we said it in the Atlantic and instead the response was shockingly positive. And it was really meant a lot to me to have people. There was one person wrote an article saying, they were, her brother had killed himself uh, several years ago, and she was in a classroom where nobody knew that. And they covered a, an incident, a story included someone jumping off the building, which is exactly the way her brother committed oh. suicide. Yeah, it's horrible. But she said that, but it was also the first time that anybody treated me not with kid gloves, that essentially, like, nobody actually stared at me, nobody actually said, you know, censored it so that she, and it was the first time she felt normal in years. And that it really, and I know that feeling, that feeling when you, you, you're just kind of like, please just don't treat me different for a second. I need to just feel normal. And that, you know, some of those outpourings really meant a lot to me. And so John and I were like, oh, well, you know, for a while, there was a second most read cover story in the history of the Atlantic. And we were like, okay, wow. And we felt like we'd done our jobs. And, uh, you know, as I jokingly say, and, you know, we cured the whole problem. <laughs> just kidding. We thought it, we, we were basically done with it. We thought we'd made our argument and it would, you know, go back to our other work. And unfortunately, everything got much, much worse on campus. So we decided to write a book about it to go really deeper, most importantly, into this question, what was so different about the entering class in 2013, 2014? What made this really sort of like discontinuity so stark? And what was that? That was one of my questions. What, is, what was that epicenter? What was that like ground zero of why that caused? Why it got so much worse. So the whole book really is dedicated to trying to figure that out. And the thing that really sort of made us certain that we had to do this research 
was because as we had already agreed to do the book, but we just really early on, we started getting the data. Because at the time when we wrote the article in 2015, there, unsurprisingly, wasn't a tremendous amount of data about what the class of you know, 2014 looked like because it wasn't ready yet. We start getting the data on the psychological profile of the incoming class of 2013, 2014, and the incoming class of 2015, 2016, and up, all the way up to 2016. And it was terrifying. You're talking about you know, self-reports of anxiety and depression tripling in some cases. And, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, this just means they're more comfortable with it. Also, people being seen for anxiety and depression going way, way up. And if people say, oh, well, that just means that we're, we're spotting it more often. And we're like, OK, well, that's two big pieces of data right there that you're kind of dismissing. The one that, that is undismissible, though, that's not something that can be changed by definition is the saddest one. Hospital admissions for self-harm and suicides. And we're talking about if you look at the trajectory for young women. From 2008 to uh, 2017, 2018, the suicide rate doubled. Overall, if you take the entire first decade of this century and compare them to the last couple of years, it's up around 70% for girls. The mental health crisis has been hitting boys less severely, and we have theories about why that is in the book. But the whole book is dedicated to figuring out how this happened. We definitely, when we dug into it, we left with a strong belief that social media was making a lot of existing problems much, much worse. Uh, social media kind of accelerated all sorts of things. I think it also accelerated polarization, which is another thread that we talk about as having been a contributing factor to making people feel like, you know, they're people who agree with me or evil people, <laughs> more or less. But when it came to uh, the anxiety and depression, the correlation was definitely there that extensive social media use and depression and anxiety were pretty well correlated. Now, why this generation? Well, you know, when you work backwards, figuring out what would have made this class different, they were probably the first class hitting school that were on social media with a phone in their pocket as much as they wanted to be. They really came of age at, unfortunately, the right time. And when people are sort of skeptical about, you know, for example, why this hit girls harder, it's like, you know, if you have sisters, imagine the worst aspects of junior high school, but then imagine them 24 hours a day forever. I have two daughters in middle school right now. Oh, geez. Well, you know, if you can keep them off social media for a little while, as we dug more into it, but there's even some research indicating that the lack of sleep from being on your phone all the time might be a contributing factor as well. Uh, That's one of the reasons why I say 24 hours, because, you know, that nasty, nasty environment. And of course, when people are in these social media bubbles, they're even worse about it because there's none of that sort of like face-to-face element They've got sort of a cheering section, more or less, behind them. You know, it's easier to, the people who agree with you become much more salient in your social media life than they would, you know, even if you're in a room being nasty to someone, there's one person who's kind of like, you're being jerks. Like, that's enough oftentimes to check that kind of behavior. But on social media, the dynamic can become much nastier. So we definitely think that when it comes to the genuine increase in in mood disorders, we think that social media plays a big role. We think that made the polarization part of it worse. We also talk about new ideas about social justice becoming much more popular. We talk about intersectionality in the book. Intersectionality is a concept that we're very clear on. We think of actually there's a lot of validity to it, that essentially in order to understand um, someone's identity, you can't just take the broad category. The person who, who first proposed this was more or less saying there are issues faced by black people and there are issues faced by women, but it's not quite right to think that the same issues would be faced by the combination just of black and women, that essentially it could be an entirely different category of Mm. 
problem and, and a, or at least a very different nature of a problem. And John and I both say we think she's entirely right. But the way intersectionality has been interpreted on campus is something that we call common enemy identity politics versus common humanity identity politics. We're very in favor of common humanity identity politics. This is like in the great speeches of MLK. He comes to this over and over again, where he's not saying that we're enemies. He's saying that you should understand us as your brothers and sisters and that we deserve the same dignity and rights that all of you have enjoyed. And our founding fathers said, you know, we the people enjoy this. And it's incredibly morally compelling. Uh, it's the approach that was eventually very successful in the gay rights movement and the women's rights movement as well. Just saying, like calling us out on our, our double standards and saying, we deserve this too. Um, and that's very compelling. And it broadens kind of like the definition of your society. It's very, there's something morally satisfying about it. But common enemy identity politics is more of what you'll see on social media these days, which is... All the vitriol, yeah. Yeah. Well, and when you see people talking about different intersections of privilege, to a large degree, they're engaging in that. And not to say that, and of course, people are like, so you're saying privilege doesn't exist? I'm like, no, I'm not saying privilege doesn't exist. But if your argument is, you know, effectively, if you check off any of these boxes, I don't have to listen to you. And I have a quick rhetorical out of an argument with you. Unfortunately, that's going to get abused to high heaven. So I sometimes think like people who really believe in intersectionality should be the most critical of people who just use it as a, you know, arguing technique to get out of arguments that they don't like. And if you really follow the intersectionality, um, like the privilege theory down the rabbit hole, you realize pretty quickly that given all the tools that have come out of it, you can dismiss the opinions of 100% of the entire population of the species. That's a very tempting thing to use um, rhetorically. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't do any, anything to bring people together. It doesn't do anything to make people uh, feel happier about themselves or anything else. Because the other thing, when I try to explain what's you know, sort of depressing about this ideology is because as it's currently interpreted, it means that practically all of us, well, not us too, but most people on campus are both oppressed and oppressor. You know, white men are just merely oppressors, unfortunately. But almost, almost everybody else, you know, is, is some combination of the two. And it's treated as if it is just a fact of nature, and there's really nothing you can do to change it, and it's going to be this way forever. But also, you know, because this is what's going through my mind, because this is a fascinating topic, and it's, you know, the relevance is, you know, clearly there with college campuses, but it's everywhere. It's, it's all sorts of, you know, throughout society. And, you know, I, I read the acronym of FIRE, which is, you know, the individual rights is a big, you know, it's the, that's the meat in the middle. And, you know, I, I can't help but think that it's just this, the understanding of what the collective and a group is and a society and a, and a class versus an individual. And it's yeah. the, the mesh, mesh of that and like the misunderstanding or, you know, just not the right view of what an individual is and what their rights are and then what a group is and what their rights are. Mm. That's where I think it sets it. I don't know. I've, I've at least tried to talk to my, you know, to my kids and my girls because they deal, you know, they're, they're dealing with it daily now. And, you know, I, I look at, you know, them wanting to fit in, them wanting to be part of a group, wanting to be part of, they want to fit in, they want to be liked and, and they find identity in that. However, there's so much weight there as opposed to the actual individual they are, which is unique to them and celebrating that. And it's almost this kind of like pull between the two desires, the two you know driving forces, wanting to be part of a group, but also recognizing that you're an individual. I think that's where you know social media has been amazing, but it's also been very destructive. And and maybe the common theme is just the lack of understanding when it comes down to 
what an individual is, what their rights are, and what a group is and what their rights are. Is that, are you following that? Is that have relevance to, you know, how you've written about these things and, and potentially what some of the solutions are? Yeah, well, it, interestingly, kind of like, you know, one of the reasons why we have individual rights in our name is not just because freedom of speech and due process are individual rights, but because when um, Alan Kors and Harvey Silverglade were thinking about these issues going back to, you know, the 1980s and 90s, was that there was kind of a sense that it was individual rights was kind of like a dirty, a dirty word almost, because really more the idea is sort of like this group rights kind of idea that, that essentially somehow having a better concept of group rights would somehow set us free or make us more progressive or something like that. But the thing I always try to explain is that individual rights protects group rights. <laughs> that if you have the right to decide what group you can join, it's entirely within your rights to decide that you the primary way you evaluate yourself um, is by your membership in whatever particular group. But it has to be left up to the individual to also say, you know, I prefer not to make the dominant part of my self-identification to be my race or my economic background or any of this kind of stuff. I, I, you know, someone is free to identify themselves more as a Mormon, for example, or for that matter, as an atheist. And the problem with group rights is it takes that freedom away from individuals and treats them like automatons, essentially like, oh, more or less kind of like, here's your leader. Um, good luck with that. And it makes it very hard to be a dissenter. And so like, if you look at the way we argue on campus, you know, um, when, you know, someone who take a um, contrarian kind of like, like Glenn Laurie at Brown University, you know, he's a black professor who a lot of times will be like the one leading the charge against silly expressions of um, political correctness. And for that, he gets treated in a lot of cases like some kind of traitor. Now, he's old enough that he just doesn't really care anymore, <laughs> which is, you know, one of the nice things about getting older. It is interesting because it speaks to this idea that I haven't written about this yet, but I call this the perfect rhetorical fortress. That essentially, like, if you look at all of the uh, one thing that colleges have really excelled at, you know, from the 1980s on, unfortunately, is using a lot of IQ power to figure out a series of defenses that basically mean you never actually have to have an argument with somebody ever again, or at least never have to listen to someone that you really disagree with. And, you know, it was simple enough uh, when I was in school to if you could dub someone conservative, you didn't have to listen to them anymore. So that was even back in the 90s. And that's surely primitive and silly, but it was weird. I hate to say it was even effective on me in some cases. And I'm now ashamed of that. But as you as you go on, you start seeing, you know, well, like I said, the privilege ideology really does allow you to dismiss at least 99% of the entire population of the planet, if not more. But then you add things like class and economic privilege. And, and um, some of the Connor Fieserdorf wrote about this. He calls them the idioms of non-argument, you know, assuming bad motives. And congratulations, like you have uh, multiple defenses that allow you to uh, just dismiss without actually addressing the substance of their argument every single person you ever meet that you disagree with. Now, the wonderful trick is, of course, you don't have to use that for anybody you agree with. So it could be like the whitest, richest person in the entire world, but you don't have to dismiss them. If they, and you wouldn't probably want to if you actually 100% agreed with them. And this is a really strong reminder that when people you know, had all these rules about argumentation, about trying to address someone's, the substance of someone's argument, that's in the face of our really natural inclination to find some other dodge, some other way to get out of it. That doesn't mean I actually have to have this unpleasant experience of an argument. But that's like the biggest opportunity for growth, right? Absolutely. And it's one of those, like, I have a saying, because I've had hundreds of, of employees over the years, and, and I've had tons of hardships, meltdowns you know, years ago. 
and I just, you know, a lot of the, what we're talking about, I, I've, you know, thought through a lot and discovered certain things here and there, but we have a saying now, which has really become one of our values, which is, you know, it doesn't matter who's right. It's, it's understanding what's right. And the discovery of what's right oftentimes comes about through facing the fear of being wrong. And there's such a tremendous fear there of, because the people relate being wrong from the perspective of, of somebody else somehow equates to something wrong with you. And that's not, it's not true. And, and, and that's where I look at, again, it, it's the opportunity to grow. And because of society, and that was a huge point that you made, which is society is changing daily, mm-hmm. right? And it's kind of like the groups are getting stronger and stronger and stronger because the, kind of the, the sense of, of, uh, of uncertainty is, is strengthening but at the same time, I think uncertainty is so beautiful because of how it lets a person, you know, make tremendous progress, groups to make progress. Yep. But you have to face that fear of being wrong because everybody, everybody has that. I mean, that's, that's just the nature of life and humanity is that, you know, we have quirks and, and nuances and things we're not good at, but we have things we're great at. And yep. that's where it's like the, you know, the convergence of different personalities and strengths and individuals, you know, allows for just incredible discovery. Uh, but I see why, you know, it dates back to the, war, you know, the, the wars that existed since the beginning of time, which is this group versus this group. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I look at, you know, really uh, college and, you know, the education that's past the point where a child is at their, you know, parents' home and they have a, a sense of safety and stability there. I mean, this is an environment where bodies are changing, minds are changing, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're maturing. And it's the, it, it could be an environment in which our future, the, the future of our society can be, can be amazing and incredible. But at the same time, I, I look at really just this clamp down on it doesn't matter what's right. It's I'm right and you're wrong. And yeah. that really, you know, and I would say it, it's been faced in history for, you know, how many hundreds of years? And it hasn't led to anything great. It's only when, you know, those difficult things to talk about. Right. And, and they can only be talked about in the environment where people are OK with being wrong and want to discover what's right. Right. Is really where progress is made. Yeah. There's this great book by Jonathan Rausch called Kindly Inquisitors. That he wrote, and actually the audiobook now is um, Penn Gillette is a big fan of it, um, and he he did the audiobook for the 20th anniversary of Kindly Inquisitors a, oh. a little while back, um, and it's all about you know something that I all first amendment people have to explain is kind of like most of human history is what Rausch calls fundamentalist, and he doesn't mean that in a religious sense. He means that authority and truth come from the top down, um, whether it's you know your chief or your oligarchs or your um, the- theocratic, um, you know, pharaoh, essentially that's the way uh, figuring out truth works. And that's most of human history. And it's a really a radical idea to start being like, you know what, I am going to stop burning heretics. Um, I am going to stop making uh, loud mouths drink hemlock. I'm going to stop crucifying uh, the, the people who who say uh, ideas that really bother me. Like all of like all of these things that we have done to either dissenters or weirdos. You know, uh, um, burning them at the stake, beheading them. All all of this kind of thing will wait at the dissenter in ages past. And not only will I tolerate that person, I'm even going to listen to them. I'm going to listen to them. It's crazy, and it's a very hard social order to maintain. It doesn't come naturally to us. But with time, you, you start seeing this, this, this approach has real advantages, but it does undermine kind of like that comfortable certainty that essentially, I've, I've talked about this in, in terms of Dostoevsky, that I feel like a, one of the messages in, all, throughout Dostoevsky's book is great human evil comes out of the desire to explain the meaning of life in 10 words or less. <laughs> that essentially having that ideology, having that theory that you can always come back to that has 
that frees you of the duty to think um, is very, very tempting, but there's great evil there. But, you know, freedom of speech, uh, hearing people you disagree with, none of this comes very naturally. And unfortunately, I feel like some institutions on campus are actually pushing us more towards our more negative instincts on this, that, that, that you know, listen to the people you uh, already agree with. And in the book, we have, um, you know, of course, people know about the Milo riots at Berkeley. You know, I understand people not liking Milo Yiannopoulos. I'm not the biggest fan myself, but they, it was an absolutely out of control riot in which there are people who are very badly hurt that if you watch the videos of them being assaulted, you were like, I can't believe those people survived, uh, you know, being hit across the head with a 20 foot um, flagpole. You know, it was really terrifying. We also talk about the Evergreen State University case involving Brett Weinstein. You know, we got some uh, Pamela Pretsky, who was our, um, chief researcher on this went out and did some of the interviews on that. And it's really, once again, much worse than I thought. And even really sad incidents where a very respected uh, young philosophy professor wrote a piece talking about the ideas of um, you know, Rachel Dolezal, you know, was, was the one who convinced everybody that she was actually black when she was actually a white woman. And she became like president of a local NAACP and worked for a university. And um, a professor wrote about this saying, okay, so if, if we think that, you know, gender is actually more fluid and you can, you know, it's up to you to kind of decide what your gender identity is, why don't we apply this to racial identity? You know, done in a very academic way, done in a very thoughtful way. And we liken it to something that, and we don't try to do this lightly, but we liken it to a witch hunt, that essentially it was a relatively small transgression. And suddenly she's, you know, they're, they're demanding that the magazine withdraw the article, um, which is unusual. Um, they're you know, recommending that this person be fired. This is Rebecca Tuvel. And what's even more messed up about it was that some of the professors who had signed, you know, these uh, circulated petitions saying, you know, down with Professor Tuvel would contact her independently and say, listen, I'm really sorry of uh, what's happening to you. And it's like that. And I'm, that's that's kind of the dynamic of like when a mob's lost its mind, when essentially like I couldn't really disagree with the mob. Um, it's like, well, it's the mob and individual, right? It's like the, it's yeah. that whole, like, here's the individual apologizing for, you know, the sins of the mob. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, the, it, I had a crazy story in the book. <laughs> well, I had, you can write, you can write like volumes of books on all of this because, you know, as much as it applies to education, right. It applies to, you know, politics, uh, the economy, business, I mean, one thing I've been thinking as you've been as you've been talking and making these points is like, what you know, the purpose of college, right, is is X, right? People go in with expectations of, okay, these are the results I want to get by finishing college, which is getting you know a job, having a profession, figuring out what I want to do. It's like, but that's the thing. It's like in the corporate world with me, you know, I've I've we've gotten to the point where we don't look at necessarily colleges as a good thing. Sometimes we'll look at where they went to college, okay, and then their personality and how they fit within culture. Because if you if you have you know mob mentality, mom theory, right? It's not good for a company, right? And it may it could be in a sense if if values align, but most companies want you know creativity, they want uh, strengths, they look at you know being able to combine multiple people with different perspectives and different backgrounds in order to accomplish a common end. And if you've yeah. been, you know reared with this kind of mob rule, it's going to be, it's difficult to fit into to a company yeah. and it's going to actually hurt going to, to certain colleges in a sense, if you, if you really think about it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've come to a very similar conclusion. Um, you know, and, and I will say this, I want to be very clear about this. I went to American University as a scholarship student 
And it was, you know, not, it was a school that I always felt, I always feel some hostility towards it because they kept on chipping away at my scholarships, even though I had very good grades and I'll never forgive them for that. But it definitely was a place that was less dogmatic um, than uh, Stanford where I went to law school. Now, I always want to be clear. I received a world-class education there. Like it was great. They were smart and interesting people. But now I do wonder that particularly for some of these elite colleges, you know, I've, I've said this flat out in some cases. You know, we've had great luck hiring people from University of Indiana, from a lot of the big, you know, high quality state schools. And I think that the some of this um, dysfunctional ideology is less present there. And I and I do I've I've heard, you know, a lot of these people don't want to come forward, but I've heard, you know, I've talked to people who work for um, cause organizations, you know, like big uh, legal representation organizations that do a good job of like helping homeless people and working for on the sides of the angels and all sorts of stuff. And they'll say candidly that they've been paralyzed by some of the expectations from the from the younger employees from some of the elite schools because they've gotten so used to this way, this very inward looking way of arguing that more or less just kind of assumes all of your allies are trying to oppress you, that that's not functional. Like, like that's going to if you end up having schools that are producing, you know, employees who are not able to look beyond their own sort of personal drama to actually deliver to the, you know, the, the higher, the greater good of what the company is trying to do. It, it, it's poison. And of course, you know, I, I know from personal experience, when you're trying to run a really professional shop, you know, one really disruptive person um, ruins the whole thing. And who, and particularly if you don't trust that person, you know, like when, uh, and that's something that I've said to my employees a million times, you know, I'm like, listen, we try to be very good to our employees. We try to find good people and keep them. But if I can't trust you, you'll be fired in a heartbeat. And it scares people at first. I'm like, yeah, but I mean, I'm talking about like, don't lie to me. Like, don't try to pull a fast one, because if I see that in your character, that's not not someone I ever want to work with again. And, you know, I've basically given two pieces of of advice, I think, for people running businesses. Be careful hiring people, younger people from some of these really elite uh, colleges. Um, and also, uh, uh, my stock tip is if you can invest in human resources organizations, um, do. <laughs> They're going to have a lot of work in the next, you know, five to ten years. Well, you have a lot of like. There's a segment whether it's you know Simon Simon Sinek is a you know is a is a big one where you have a segment of you know the personal development space that's focusing on all and all of this, and that's where I've learned a ton because, yeah, it's like a, trying to trying to work with somebody who doesn't want to be wrong. They can't be wrong. It's like afraid of being wrong. It's the worst thing in the world. And yeah. it, it's like, there's no progress. There's no progress that's made because justifications are, you know, in, in everything that doesn't necessarily go as planned. So it's one of those, like, you know, it's, it's kind of to, to finish this up. I knew this is going to be a long, a long interview, <laughs> right? But it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I have kids and I understand the nature of coddling. I have a sure. four-year-old and it's kind of like, I, I think about it all the time. I'm like, oh my God, I love this. I, I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And I, I always say this, I'm like, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying not t- coddling your kids is easy. It's hard. It's um, super hard. Yeah. And because that's all you want to do. Like, like basically, I just want to hug my sons and make sure that nobody ever like makes them cry. And you like, and you feel like if you think about some harm coming to him, it's like you want to <laughs> break down walls. Yeah, exactly. Or, or just, you know, weep. Um, the, uh, and yeah, so I totally get it. And, and th- so there was a great book uh, by Sarah Zasky called Actung Baby, which is about how the Germans are actually doing a better job raising their kids in a 
free independent environment than we are. So like, like everything's like really switched in this respect that essentially, you know, the home of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn is now has helicopter parenting, whereas Germany, you know, like the classic or authoritarian culture, um, at least in our imaginations, is actually have has a really strong societal commitment to raising independent, self uh, um, sufficient kids, self reliant kids. And one thing that that really I thought was so important about that book, though, is it's very easy to dismiss some of these like cultural norms as just being a peculiarity of that culture. And that's why it's so great that Sarah Zayaski, the author of it, put in an interview with one of the German parents where they were like, no, 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 don't misunderstand. This is very hard for us. <laughs> like, we, we, I, you know, I want to run up and hug my kids and make sure that they don't, you know, go off to the, the overnight slumber camp too early. But they know it's good for them. And they know it's it, and you have to value it as a society because you can really do such great harm if, if you don't teach uh, children to you know, think for themselves, to be independent, to be at least to some degree self-reliant. And, and it harms them right down to their um, locus of control. And locus of control is a psychological idea. Um, and it makes it, it's very common sense that essentially, like, if you feel like you have no control over your own life, it's a great, you know, it's a great way. It's a great formula for making people depressed and anxious. And when you have all of these, you know, and this is the one reason why I don't particularly love the title coddling. Is because it sometimes gives gives you the idea of this kind of like spoiled, pampered kid. And when I think about a lot of these kids who are actually going to the elite colleges, um, they're actually they work very, very hard, and they've been working very, very hard since they're very young. They've been, you know, uh, they've been scheduled from you know six in the morning to ten o'clock at night for a lot of their a lot of their childhoods. So I think of them more like a very finely designed rocket, <laughs> you know, that only knows how to do one thing. <laughs> but then they show up on campus. Uh, we, we did a lot of interviews with um, Julie Lescott Haynes, who wrote this great book called How to Raise an Adult, which came out of her dealing with students who were incoming to Stanford, freshmen incoming. And this really sad scenes of like this brilliant, you know, kid who's constantly on the phone to their parents to ask them what to do. And they don't know how to do their laundry. They don't know how to uh, cook for themselves. And all of these little things, they're what make you actually feel like you can live your life on your own and, and be successful. Um, they're really essential. They're not little things. No, they're not. It creates a sense of confidence, a, cr- a sense of certainty that, you know, wow, I, I, I mean, there, there's the idea of dependence and independence. I mean, like we can talk about that for, for eons because that dates back to the beginning of time too. Sure. Right. And there's certain principles associated with it, but they absolutely apply to, to rearing kids. And that comes down to, you know, what's the result that you're looking for? And I can see how wanting to coddle that desire, it's the same desire as, you know, understanding getting a child from, you know, this idea of dependence into independence, mm-hmm. right? Same desire. You want what's best for your, for your child, but it really comes down to the same thing we've been talking about, which is, you know, it's like th- they're going to be independent at some point and there's yeah. ways in which you can, you know, create the environment right? So that they can ex- experience some adversity, they can experience tension and pressure, right? And learn from it. You can't teach that. It's like that has to be, there's certain things that just have to be experienced in order yep. to learn. There's no app for it. You know, you, you can't like, you know, you, go, you can't go into YouTube and experience it. Like it's, it's <laughs> right. actually like, you have to experience. Can I simulate experience that? And the answer is no. Maybe <laughs> VR, let's say like figure VR out, you know, maybe you can experience it that way. But my yeah. point is, it's like, yeah, there, there's there's nothing that can replace that, which is you know, figuring things out and understanding other perspectives and and failing, right? I think oh, yeah. this goes to Peter Gray. We were talking about him before, the free to learn, where failure is a concoction of, you know, in a sense, the school system, right? Because you look at failure and it's like, 
not doing something right is just, you know, okay, well, I'm going to do it better next time. It's, it's part of the process. Whereas failure, it's like, we're done. I can't, I, I'm dumb. I can't learn anything. Yeah. And, you know, and so it's, I, I don't know, I look at, you know, the, the experience I've had in, in life and in business and, uh, and with kids and, you know, there's, I think there's, there's principles that are, are old as time. And you reference a lot of them in the, you know, in the book and they date yep. back to, to Aristotle, they date back to Socrates. And, you know, there's these, these ideas that have existed and they apply just as much today as they, uh, as they did then. And I look at just, I don't know, sometimes these type of events where schools fail, I mean, they're failing because they're loading kids with, with debt. I mean, that's, they should be more pissed at that. Like, instead of being pissed off of it, opposing points of views, they should be pissed yep. at all the money they're getting charged that they're going to have to pay back one day. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that, you know, it's, it's the idea that it's not sustainable. It's good. There's something that's just going to grow and get worse and blow up. And, and yeah. sometimes those are the events, right. That like get people to step back and be like, all right. Yeah. I, I guess that didn't work. So let's now learn from it and move and move on. I spent a lot of time thinking about how we can, you know, fix higher education because there's parts of it that I really truly love. And like practically every book I read, or at least a big chunk of them, are written by, you know, university professors who are talking about what they've been working on their whole lives. And so I'm very aware of like the special role uh, and a very positive role that higher education has. Um, but I also spent a lot of time thinking about surely we can figure out um, less expensive, uh, higher yield, better ways to. And also, you know, my being an employer, if a fire, we have about 50 people working for us at this point. Um, has really colored my view of all of this stuff and, you, you know, trying to figure out like what you actually want in an employee. But also, you know, I'm a, I'm a civics guy. So I'm also like, what do we also want in citizens? And I think if you really broke it down, um, you know, calculus is fun. It's an interesting intellectual puzzle, but I'd take someone who has a, a solid grounding in statistics or has some amount of numeracy. They actually know roughly, you know, what, 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 what population sizes look like and that kind of stuff. Could, could, that's the kind of stuff you want people to know. And we're not doing a very good job of delivering any of this. So, so one of the reasons why there is this disproportionate favoritism for the elite colleges is because the elite colleges get to be in the position of finding kids who are already bright and hardworking. And then they really, all they have to do is not ruin them <laughs> by, by four years. And I think you know, some would argue that they probably do their best, you know, best job at it, um, you know, uh, or they really can improve their thinking. A lot of times when they go in for a hard science degree. But surely there's got to be a better way, you know, and, and uh, so I'm op- and I think that it's not as if we're going to get rid of higher education, nor would I even want to. But I think a lot of the worst excesses uh, from everything from cost to um, dysfunctionality would be addressed if people could finally start figuring out some of the um, breaking the riddle of like what would be a good competitive model uh, for this as soon as they're actually it's kind of like I think we all remember when um, Apple finally became a real threat to IBM's dominance that suddenly magically, you know, all of our computers just got a lot better, <laughs> you know? And I think that if, if there was something that was enough to make the Academy anxious, we would see a lot of these problems get fixed quickly. Well, I think, yeah, I think, and you know, we, we should probably end with this. I want to give you just a second to, to talk about fire and how people can get involved. Sure. Absolutely. You know, but I look at, yeah, that, that's a, that's a great example. And that's what competition often reads, right? Where, and I think that there are signs of that, right? You have a lot of online, like ASU now, which is you know known as like a reputable, school, you know, very reputable school system. Mm-hmm. As online, you know, online this, online that, and, and so I, I think you know there's there's things that are going to be disrupting. But I really think the 
the tidal wave of kids not being able to pay back their student loans. I think that right there is going to be one of those catalysts to there's so much there, so much pressure and so much, you know, negativity that that uh, that pushes the up and coming generations to to realize that, wow, I'm not paying $150,000 for for school. Right. I'm going to go this route. And so hopefully that manifests soon because it's it's still I know it's still kind of getting out of control, getting more out of control. No, agreed. So FIRE, uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, um, where, where you can find out more about us at thefire.org. We're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. Um, we're doing a big event in uh, New York City. We defend free speech on college campuses all across the political spectrum. Um, if you get in trouble on a college campus, we defend you. One thing that I think is very unique about FIRE, and I do believe that things can be very unique, uh, no matter what gra- grammar people say, is that we actually have people who vote for different people all across the spectrum. You know, we actually practice what we preach and we have an office um, in which people, uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats and Green Party and, um, you know, Christians and uh, Jewish people and, and Muslim people and atheists like me, you know, you know, all work together for common cause. Uh, and we just came out with our, our 10 worst schools for free speech list. Uh, just yeah, yesterday. I saw that, yeah. and, uh, and, and it's always, it, it always kind of like surprises people what ends up getting on there because yes, absolutely. Some of the cases are political correctness run amok. People now understand that that's relatively common, but there's also cases where it's just like, at, like at Rensselaer Polytechnic um, Institute. It's really just kind of like, could you please stop criticizing the administration? We don't like this very much. You know, like sort of stories all the time. If you have kids, by the way, that that are going to college, whether you or any of your listeners, we provide uh, guides to due process and fair procedure uh, that every student should read before they go on. It's what to do if you get if you find yourself in front of one of these um, disciplinary tribunals. Um, We also have a guide to freedom of speech uh, that you can use. And if worse comes to worse and you actually get in trouble on campus, uh, we're very successful in getting students and professors who get in trouble uh, out of trouble. <laughs> we'll make sure all, all the links. I mean, I know you have uh, obviously FIRE's uh, website and then you have a really cool URL, the, the, the codlink.com, uh-huh. you know, for the book. But we'll make sure all those links get out on our social media and as Great. well as our, our blog so we can uh, increase uh, awareness of what you guys are, are, are doing to impact, you know, the the what seems to be uh, ominous at this point. Yeah. Well, thank you. It was a real pleasure talking to you and I got to get back to a defendant. Yes, I'm 20 minutes late for something else. Uh, Greg, you're awesome. It was an awesome conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Really fun chatting with you. Take care. Hey listeners. Thanks for tuning in. My book, the Amazon bestseller heads. I win tales. You lose a financial strategy to reignite the American dream is completely changing the way people look at saving, wealth, and retirement. Want a sneak peek? Head on over to www.headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast for a free audio and text download of my favorite chapter. Again, that's headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, 
please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh,